Well, good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to our audience, wherever they are, who are watching via live streaming. My name's Nick Caudry. I'm head of the LSE Department of Media and Communications, and I'll be chairing tonight's event. It's great to see so many of you here tonight to hear this public lecture by our esteemed colleague, Sonia Livingston, on the topic of children's rights in the digital age. And we also have two distinguished respondents. First, kindly, at very short notice, replacing Jasmina Byrne, who's indisposed, we have John Carr, who is a senior visiting fellow in our department and one of the world's leading authorities on young people's use of the internet. He's expert advisor to many NGOs, including the global NGO Expat International and the NGO Alliance for Child Safety Online, and also formerly Vice President at Fox Interactive Media. And second, we have Professor Robin Mansell, who is also, of course, a member of LSE's Department of Media and Communications. Sonia will speak for about 40 to 45 minutes, and then John and Robin will respond for up to 10 minutes each, and then we should have, hopefully, plenty of time for Q&A. Now, Sonia, of course, needs no introduction to many of you. But at least let me give a little context. Since the late 1980s, when in her 20s, early 20s maybe, I don't know, I'm not sure, something like that, she attended a seminar in Germany that led to one of the most influential edited collections in the history of audience research, a book, Remote Control. And ever since then, she has been shaping debates in our field. Her first book, published in 1990, was Making Sense of Television, and she is the author or editor of no less than 18 further books and well over 100 articles and book chapters. As well as becoming one of the world's leading authorities on the wider area of audience research, she's taken a particular field, children's uses of media, synthesised and expanded it pushing it in new directions, while at the same time building long-term organisational networks to facilitate the impact of research on policy. Sonia has led a long succession of large-scale funded projects, and some examples of recent outputs from those projects are available in the foyer tonight. And today is also Safer Internet Day, a campaign to which, towards which Sonia and her researcher made a significant contribution. But aside from the impressive detail of Sonia's achievements, there is something even bigger that stands out, which is that Sonia has a remarkable vision of what academic work can do in the world. And more than a vision, an extraordinary commitment to the enormous hard work that implementing such a vision requires, for which, it's no exaggeration to say it, she is held in awe by many colleagues around the world. And this was summed up when our friend from the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism in Los Angeles, Henry Jenkins, himself, as many of you know, no slouch when it comes to publishing or advocacy, referred to Sonia at a public event as quite simply a force of nature. And for those of you who haven't, like me, had the great privilege of working closely with Sonia over many years, what you might not know is that she is also a force of kindness, one of the most supportive and thoughtful colleagues one could ever have. 
And so it is not just with keen expectation and pride, but also with a sense of strong affection that on behalf of LSE's Department of Media and Communications, I invite Professor Sonia Livingston to give her public lecture on children's rights in the digital age. Sonia. Nick, thank you so much for those um, kind words. Uh, and thank you uh, all for coming this evening. Um, it's a pleasure to be able to have a chance to tell you what I've been thinking about uh, in, uh, over quite some time now. I thought I'd start by saying that in the past year or so, my work has taken a turn that I didn't exactly anticipate. I spent about 15 years researching the meanings, practices and consequences of children's engagement with a constantly changing array of new media. Concentrating on Europe, the part of the world I know best, I've hung out in kids' bedrooms, chatted with families in the living room, observed what goes on with technology in the classroom, kept up with the latest social networking trends and surveyed children and parents cross-nationally. When I began this work, nearly all the available research and much of the policy discussion was centred on or stemmed from the United States. So it's been a fascinating task to work with colleagues in the EU Kids Online Network to build research capacity, develop methods, generate new findings, and work with policymakers in Europe. Then a couple of years ago, I was invited by UNICEF, in fact by uh, Yasmina Byrne, who couldn't be here tonight, sadly, um, to help them respond to requests for guidance from their country offices all over the world as children far beyond Europe were going online and sometimes finding themselves in trouble. So I participated in events on children's rights in the digital age at the European Parliament, in the Council of Europe, at the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child. I joined the board of Baroness Bieben Kidron's iRights Initiative and in the process... I found myself translating the social science agenda of research on children's online risks and opportunities into the language of children's rights. And all this thinking about children's rights made me notice how countries worldwide are issuing internet-related bills of rights. They seem to be a new one every day. And in these proliferating internet bills of rights, many of them don't mention children at all or only as victims of illegal child abuse. And I began to wonder why children are getting left out and how to build the counter-argument, the case for research, policy and practice to support children's rights in the digital age. I have to say, in this task, I find myself stretched in terms of my own competence. I'm not a lawyer or a technologist or an expert in international development. But I think that's increasingly the state of play for many of us. Our problems are ever more multidisciplinary, more globalised, and more concerned to link evidence and impact. So I'd like to say something today about the way in which children uh, go online and encounter online risks and opportunities. And I want to reflect on how to translate this into the rights framework in a way that could be taken forward by child welfare and internet governance regimes. So first, just a short note on definitions. I'll follow the UN definition of the child as a person under 18 years old, not to patronise the many under-18s around the world who have financial or caring responsibilities, but to draw on the moral conviction of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child that under-18-year-olds have a particular claim to rights over and above that of adults. 
On the terminology of Global North and Global South, I'll use this in preference to the much criticised language of development or third world. But still we have to be wary that these terms tend to polarise regions of the world, underestimating inequalities within countries and commonalities, even across continents. And as for information and communication technologies, or the internet or the digital age, there's another semantic minefield. As long as the technologies keep changing, our terms stay unsettled. What's important is that at no point do I mean to imply a technologically determinist position according to which the internet in and of itself is seen to create new benefits or harms in children's lives. And nor do I suggest a radical break with previous times. Children's lives are in many ways continuous with those of previous generations. And insofar as they're changing, there are many causes for this far beyond changes in technology. Still, in the past decade, the volume of research on technology in children's lives has grown exponentially, paralleling the development and spread of the internet itself. And the research agenda, as I see it, has centred on four fairly straightforward questions. How are children gaining access to and using the internet in their daily lives? Does it enable them to have greater access to information, education, participation and other valued opportunities? Does it compound existing vulnerabilities or introduce new risks of harm to children's well-being? And which initiatives, policies and practices are effective for maximising the benefits and minimising the harm for children in relation to technology uses? So I'm now going to summarise a lot of research in a few key points so I can move on to questions of rights. So here is a, a European uh, illustration of, as it were, a ladder of the ladder of opportunities. What research shows over and again is that the more children use the internet, the more digital skills they gain, the higher they climb the ladder of opportunities to gain the benefits. But not all internet use results in benefits. The chance of a child gaining the benefits depends on a whole host of factors, including their age, gender, socioeconomic status, how their parents support them, and the particular opportunities available to them. At the same time, diverse risks bother children online. What's interesting is that children's use, skills, and opportunities are positively linked to the online risks. So the more skills children gain, the more online opportunities they enjoy, the more risk of harm. Levels of risk are generally shown by reliable surveys to be lower than often feared, but they remain a concern, as you can see from the kinds of things that children are saying here in our research. So as internet use increases, greater efforts are needed to manage those risks, ideally without restricting children's opportunities, including their opportunities to explore experiment and test out boundaries. But as with the opportunities and benefits, not all risk results in harm. The chance of a child being upset or harmed by online experiences, again, depends on a host of factors including their age, gender, socioeconomic status and their resilience to cope with adversity. And also important is the role played by their parents, school, peers and community, along with national provision for regulation and content provision and education. In short, now that the internet increasingly mediates human experience, the evidence shows that the risks and opportunities associated with internet use are altering who encounters which harms and which benefits. So the eKids Online Network has tried to put all these factors together in a model to explain everything. 
I quite like it. It took me a while to draw this model. I think it... Anyway, I wanted to show you that I can get everything on one side. I'm not going to go into detail, but the key point here is to try to clarify the mediating role of the online domain to show how the internet reconfigures the opportunity structures and risk factors that shape the actual outcomes, whether beneficial or harmful, as experienced by embodied, physically located, real children. Over again, that indeterminacy between risk and harm, opportunity and benefit, has tripped up the policymakers. Witness the many children who are exposed to pornography, which is surely a risk, but show no lasting harm. Or think of the many children who are given a laptop in the classroom, surely an opportunity, but with no obvious benefit. It's always been a tough challenge to figure out which factors ensure that the opportunities reap benefits and to work out how to intervene so that the risks don't result in harm. And now we must consider also how children and others engage with the digital ecology. Researchers love to argue, and it's worth noting that it's not yet agreed that the mediation of benefit or harm really matters. Does it matter whether children hang out with friends and, or do their homework online or offline as long as they do that? Perhaps the pain of a harmed child is no worse if it arises, if it arises online or offline, though the conditions that give rise to that harm are different. Indeed, if the internet is making things worse, why aren't we seeing increased harm in children's lives? Over recent decades, the incidence of child abduction, abuse, violence against children, child accidents, suicide, they're all down, though the jury is out on children's mental health. Or perhaps this view is too simple. As online and offline become increasingly interdependent, it seems clear to me that processes of mediation are important to the quality of children's experiences, to the particular opportunities and risks that they encounter, and to the possibilities for intervention. It can be further argued, and here more work is needed, that the pathways, the mediation processes, are reshaping not only the risks and opportunities, but also the nature of the harms and benefits that may result. For example, many claim that the internet eases the anonymous circulation of extreme and violent pornography to the point where mere exposure is somehow damaging to their sexual knowledge and expectations. Or, it's widely thought that bullying is made more remorseless when it extends online as well as offline, following children into the privacy of the home and multiplying the unwitting complicity of bystanders. Some harms may even be new. Consider the use of webcams to perpetrate child sexual abuse remotely. And so may some benefits. For example, as children learn to navigate an information-based economy, they're not only learning in new ways, but the knowledge thereby gained and children's relation to it is also being reconfigured. For a researcher, these claims are challenging as they demand long-term assessment of social change to children, to society. And it's frustrating when these puzzles are reduced to simplifications within public and policy arenas, as in the constant media hyperbole that uh, accompanies uh, both researchers and policymakers in this domain. Too often, we hear the hyperbolic discourses of the pioneering and entrepreneurial digital native on the one hand, and of the vulnerable innocents robbed of their childhood on the other. 
Too often, there's a rather simple vision behind the initiatives that push technologies into schools, libraries, youth centres and homes, forgetting that teacher training, curriculum development and parental support are also vital. Or behind the initiatives that seek to profit from the child market by promoting safety products that cater to parental anxiety while overly restricting children. Not all has been problematic, of course. There are many wonderful initiatives, though not often enough scalable. There are plenty of sensible practices and some regulations that balance risks and opportunities in a proportionate manner. And there's a lot of everyday pleasure and benefit being gained from internet access by children and their families. But the effects of change have been scattered, as with many, and many opportunities um, are being missed as many as are taken up. And there's a growing set of problems specific to children that haven't yet found a solution. So, forgive me an old joke. But it's a problem online, unlike offline, that one cannot cannot reliably distinguish a child from an adult. So saying glibly that what applies online also, sorry, what applies offline also applies online, the norms, the laws, the provision of resources, community oversight, parental responsibility, just isn't enough. The digital ecology is getting more opaque. So here's some of the problems that I'd point to. Online, children often use services not targeted towards them, but rather to adults, or where the site and service providers are unaware of or negligent of their status. Children often lack the digital and other literacies they need to navigate and evaluate the demands and norms of the online environment, where caveat emptor generally holds sway. As legal minors, children cannot technically enter into the contracts that companies implement online, and nor are they easily able to seek redress. Then, children have particular educational, cultural and informational needs that could be provided online, but may not be regulated may not be readily met through provision for the general public. And since they're below the age of sexual consent, they're particularly vulnerable to sexual exploitation and abuse online as offline. Designing into digital contents and interfaces the working assumption that users are adults is one of several affordances of the internet that is complicating children's lives. Other important affordances include the way in which uh, technologies render content persistent, replicable, remixable, scalable, searchable, or via decentralised, ubiquitous, interactive and near-instantaneous networked exchanges. In such ways, use of the internet on a mass scale is reconfiguring the pathways by and through which children engage with the world. So one result is that questions of access, and not just about questions about access to the internet, but more significantly, access to the world through the internet, access to educational materials, information about government or health or sexuality, guidance for legal or personal or professional matters, opportunities to be heard or to meet with like-minded others with whom to collaborate or campaign, but also access to extreme pornography, self-harm and hate groups, criminal activities, and much more. Another consequence of these affordances is the extraordinary visibility now accorded to children's conversations, intimacies, aggression, curiosity, much of which were previously under the radar. 
And this in and of itself seems to be intensifying the hopes and fears that society holds out for its children, adding a sense of urgency to policy deliberation and practical action. Tracing how and why a particular discourse takes hold in society is always a puzzle when you're in the middle of it. But what I see is a particular discourse of children's rights taking hold, and I suggest this is partly due to the simple spread of the internet in children's lives. It's also due to the increased visibility that this gives to children's experiences, and to the need for an organising framework that can capture the sheer breadth of benefits and harms on the policy agenda. And fourthly, I, I see the discourse of rights becoming more prevalent because of the desire for a normative rationale to inspire and guide intervention. So the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child is the most prominent and most widely ratified global instrument on children's rights. It establishes basic standards and entitlements that apply without discrimination to all children worldwide. And it's often summarised in terms of what are called the three Ps, the right to provision of the resources necessary for children's survival and their development to their full potential, the right to protection from a wide array of threats to children's dignity, survival and development, the right to participation to enable children to engage with the processes that affect their development and enable them to play an active part in society. Although formulated before mass internet access was seriously imagined, especially as an everyday reality for ordinary children, around half of the Convention's 41 substantive articles have immediate and obvious relevance to the digital age. So these are the ones that I've picked out as particularly speaking to matters digital, and I will let you read them for yourself. So to return to my task as a social scientist to translate um, research on online opportunities and risks into this kind of language, it seems that we can best underpin a rights agenda by organising the research itself in terms of these three Ps. So to ask, what, to guide provision for resources necessary development, we need research on children's needs. To ground efforts to protect children from threats, we need to research the circumstances and consequences of the harms that they encounter. To design opportunities for children to participate in matters that affect them, we must explore the nature and potential of their agency. And with those, that kind of organisation in mind, we can map the research field according to the articles of the Convention. This is where I need you to have either good eyesight or a good memory... I've just squished the convention over to the left so you can see how I might map onto it the issues that arise in the digital age. It's an enormous research agenda um, in its own right. And I can think of evidence that addresses each of these points, though I shan't detail it here. But while this approach solves some problems, it gives rise to others. One problem arises if we really wish to argue that the internet is not only reconfiguring how children encounter risks and opportunities in in their lives, but also reconfiguring the resulting harms and benefits, potentially transforming the universal rights that the Convention promotes to identity, to privacy, to to expression, freedom from abuse, and so forth. Do we imagine those themselves are changing? 
Another problem is that evidence is always specific to its context. So a tension arises between the universal language of the Convention, which offers an ambitious ethical vision of rights for individuals everywhere, and the diversity of factors that shape actual uh, information, communication, technology uses, meanings and consequences. Both these arguments worry me, but for the second, I think the challenge is already staring us in the face. As some of you will have noted, most of what I've said so far is grounded in the research and policy of the global north, and now events are overtaking us, as I can show here. Internet access in the global north, the orange line, is reaching saturation, 78% last year, while that in what the ITU calls developing countries is steadily growing. But percentages can be misleading. Consider instead the absolute number of those going online across the world. The orange is still the developed. The developing countries are rising fast. Indeed, now it's the developing countries which are ahead. (coughs) Crucially, the tipping point has already passed. Two-thirds of the world's nearly three billion internet users live in the global south, and any scope for further expansion lies there too. For the developing countries, represent a population of nearly six billion people, compared to the one and a quarter billion in developed countries. And what's even more important for my present purposes is that in the developing countries, children comprise between one-third and one-half of the population, depending on the country, compared with around a fifth in developed countries. To put it succinctly, there are almost ten times as many children living in the global south as in the global north. For a growing proportion of them, internet or mobile access is becoming a reality, and they, in turn, constitute a growing proportion of the world's internet users. So what do we know about children's experiences online in the global south? On the one hand, we can't simply extrapolate existing knowledge from the north to the south. On the other hand, it would be unfortunate to repeat the mistakes of the global north among the populations now getting online in the global south, though I sometimes suspect this is exactly what's happening. Significantly, the evidence suggests that a step change in where children go online is not just a matter of geography. How children go online and the consequences of this is also changing. For example, by contrast with two decades of experience in Europe and America, access in many developing countries is increasingly mobile first, rather than desktop or workplace first. The personalisation that characterises device use in the global north also suggests a point of contrast. The GSMA's recent survey of children's mobile phone use, which shows widespread access to and use of apps and social networking services in countries as diverse as Algeria, Egypt, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, also reveals it's common to share mobile phones to meet individual or shared needs. Children in the global north do not like to share their phone. (laughs) Further, access is often community-based via cyber cafes or public workarounds of various kinds rather than based at home or school, the two main locations and thus the two main (coughs) policy foci in Europe and America. UNICEF's study in Kenya pinpoints the opportunities and risks for young people using the internet in little supervised cyber cafes, which they go to precisely because, the Kenyan children said, their parents don't understand the digital world and so are highly restrictive of their internet usage. 
In Brazil, a study based on the eKids Online model found that over half of children live in homes where no adult uses the internet, so relying on parental mediation, the standard strategy in the global north, is problematic. So given lower levels of regulation, safety guidance and parental mediation are indeed often lower levels of schooling or parenting of any kind, it's not surprising that there's growing evidence of the risk of harm faced by children in the global south. Children's experiences in the global south offline and therefore likely to be amplified (coughs) online are sharply stratified by socioeconomic, ethnic and gender inequalities and also often linked to forms of sexual and aggressive exploitation. Plan International's Because I'm a Girl research shows that in many global south countries, girls feel unsafe online or in cyber cafes while their brothers get ICT access at home. Connected.com's research in South Africa, where rates of criminal and gender-based violence are high, found that girls can be highly aware of the risks of sending revealing images of themselves, by contrast with the global north, where this has taken a lot of awareness-raising effort, precisely because their life context is so um, problematic. In countries where family and state regulation is highly conservative, there's a problematic clash of rights. Restrictions may protect children, but they also undermine their opportunities for privacy, participation, information about identity, sexuality and health, as the Child Rights International Network has shown. More positively, there are plenty of reports from educators and NGOs working in specific locales of how children are finding workarounds or creatively reappropriating available resources to connect with others when faced by limitations of hardware or connectivity or even electricity. And there are burgeoning initiatives to support local networks of young entrepreneurs and innovators along with youth groups to bring ICT-mediated learning into communities and neighbourhoods. For instance, in Iraq, one project linked adolescent girls into peer-to-peer support networks where they could discuss issues normally considered taboo. As I noted in our European research, we can see that even in privileged countries, relatively fewer children climb the ladder of opportunities to take up the more creative, interactive and participatory activities, and those who do tend to be the relatively well-off. What hasn't yet been researched is whether this ladder takes a different form in different cultural contexts, whose goals define what goes at the top of the ladder. In Europe, we've come to expect substantial public investment in internet access and online content. In countries where this is lacking, both access and use are likely to be much more commercial, with more advertising and end-user costs, and little local, independent or own language provision, especially of the kind that will stretch children's learning or stimulate their imagination. Yet even in the global north, consideration of children's rights in the digital age has been slow to come, perhaps because children are only one-fifth of the population, perhaps because they generally do have parents and schools to care for them, perhaps because dubbing children digital natives has passed responsibility onto children themselves. However, things are now changing, Maybe because both the Convention on the Rights of the Child and the World Wide Web just had their 25th birthday. More likely because of the growing numbers of children in the global south. So we now see child welfare and rights organisations extending their scope to embrace the internet. And we see advocates of freedom of expression and experts in internet governance noticing that one third of users are not adults. 
As their mutual and sometimes conflictual conversation unfolds, one result is the multiplication of charters and manifestos regarding digital rights that I showed you earlier. I think that of the Internet Rights and Principles Coalition speaks with some authority, having been devised under the auspices of the Global Internet Governance Forum, the UN and UNESCO. And here's how it fits with the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Uh, This is where I need even more (laughs) Whitway's scope. But you saw that bit and you saw that bit and only the bit on the right is new. So this is what the Internet Rights and Principles Coalition um, would... uh, have us support um, both in terms of child rights but especially in terms of internet governance organisations. This this charter has the merit of making specific reference to the positive as well as the negative rights of children and it was developed via an extended accountable multi-stakeholder process. We might even judge that it offers a comprehensive vision. So perhaps if I were to update my old joke, delivering children's rights online might look like this. (laughs) So we could all sign up, perhaps, to such efforts to ensure that children have control when it matters over their identity, their privacy and their reputation. But before getting too optimistic, let's consider some of the problems. To internet experts, the stress on the individual as the unit for rights is problematic in an age of, social, of networked sociality and big data. They might ask whether privacy, identity, expression and so forth are really properties of individuals anymore. To human rights experts, Isaiah Berlin's classic distinction between positive and negative freedoms pinpoints two problems. First, children's protection rights represent a case of negative freedom. For example, that children should be free from sexual or violent abuse, hence today's argument that protection is required online as well as offline. Interestingly, negative freedoms are usually less controversial since they seek to remove harms according to a minimalist approach to rights. Yet in practice, protecting children online has been highly controversial since, precisely, there's no good way of knowing who is a child online, And thus, child protection efforts often result in restrictions on adult freedoms, generating the paradoxical situation, as my colleague Robin Mansell might say, that promoting child rights undermines adult rights and vice versa. Meanwhile, children's provision and participation rights represent claims for positive freedom. These commonly prove controversial since they assert a maximalist vision of rights, inevitably normative, often Western, capitalist, of what the good life should be or of how even the world should be. And indeed, although providing for children's online access has gained governments considerable popularity, and although very few people would speak against children's rights for online participation, it seems to me that very few policymakers, parents or even practitioners are able to give us a very concrete and elaborated idea of what that could look like, what would constitute great provision for children or consequential opportunities for them to participate online. To elaborate this would somehow overstep the mark into those maximalist prescriptions that seem to impose our own values on others. But when those with the children's best interests at heart don't know or don't say what they want for children, the market is happy to fill the gap in our imagination. 
And so while a minimalist approach for adults might be wise, I would at least like us to imagine, ambitiously, a maximalist approach for children who may not themselves already know what the world could offer at its best. Then, as critics of rights frameworks have often observed, the politics of human rights are fraught. I'll just give you a few um, examples here. Harvard historian Samuel Moyne observes the move from claiming formal entitlements to securing real conditions for their enjoyment actually poses controversial political choices. Child's rights specialist Carl's Hansen asks us critically to examine the intended and unintended consequences of activities conducted in the name of children's rights. Former UN Special Rapporteur on the Freedom of Expression, Frank LaRue, notes that the arguments for child protection are often used, or we might say abused, to justify restrictions both on children's access to information and on the rights of adults. And UNICEF's own 25-year review of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child says that, on the one hand, state parties are no longer, just, no longer just given the option to pursue policies and practices beneficial to children. They're required to do so as a legal obligation. And yet, at the same time, governments around the world continue to violate the rights of ch- children on a widespread and systematic basis, and they do so with impunity. So clearly one can only even contemplate a rights approach if one's thoroughly reflexive and critically engaged with the environments in which, as Carl Hansen says, children's rights are produced and applied. Last, a quick comment on who is going to deliver these rights, a question you might be wondering. Because the claim of children's rights, indeed the claim of human rights, is traditionally directed to states, along with administrative procedures for monitoring and oversight in this case by the Committee of the Rights of the Child. But there's no court overseeing or enforcing the implementation of children's rights. And complicating matters, one of the extraordinary features of the digital age is the extent to which states have devolved their powers upwards to international bodies, downwards to local institutions, and most particularly outwards to private sector organisations such as those which own digital contents, services and infrastructures. For states, although the existing legislation is widely said to apply equally to the online domain, in practice this is difficult to implement. The fast-changing, highly complex, transnational nature of the internet and and related infrastructures challenges national policymakers, and many would prefer to put pressure on the industry to take responsibility, even to act in loco parentis. And this is yet more fraught data. In the age of big data, industry probably does or could now know who is a child. (laughs) But it doesn't admit to knowing this, and nor does it wish to know. Children are generally not the target market, and they don't pay the bills. If industry knew how old the users were, it would have to treat them, I suggest, according to their evolving capacities as specified in the Convention on the Rights of the Child. To be sure, some in the industry are stepping up to these responsibilities anyway, others are not, and even those we know with one face in the global north may be acting very differently in the lucrative but largely unregulated markets of the south. So as the state devolves its traditional responsibilities, the task of public oversight grows. To conclude, 
I've observed that researchers, children's organisations, industry and governments all identify a rising tide of new concerns and promised solutions from around the world. Addressing these challenges requires, of course, a truly global process of dialogue and deliberation, if such a thing is possible, and this dialogue must include children's voices and experiences, by which I don't mean blaming children when risks are encountered, nor overly celebrating their media-savvy skills, as this can too easily legitimate a laissez-faire approach. Rather, it's to recognise that children increasingly act within and through digital media, and thus have a right to contribute to its norms and governance. A recent multinational consultation on children's rights in the digital age revealed children's conviction of an indelible and positive connection between rights and the internet. So, the study which was conducted across all of those countries found children saying access to digital media now is, as they see it, a fundamental right. And their, their digital uses are mainly positive, let's encourage them, even though the online-offline binary is getting more complex all the time. These realities are changing the conditions by which children see that they can exercise their rights in the digital age. As children themselves said, digital media are the means through which they exercise their rights to information, education and participation as specified in the Convention. Literacy is fundamental to accessing digital media and thus to exercising rights in a digital age. Children understand that with rights come responsibilities and they wish to be involved in the policy deliberations that affect them. I find much to respect in these messages and some researchers, myself included, will find here the inspiration to conduct research that respects children as independent rights holders in the digital age. Some will take the further step to advocacy, though this remains controversial, given that intervention can be effortful, ineffective, politically messy. Indeed, while I've suggested it's precisely where societal infrastructures to empower children are insufficient, that a rights framework has most to offer, that's also where it can become most problematic in asserting its vision. Thus, it's important that yet other scholars adopt a critical standpoint, evaluating research, policy and practice of all kinds. So all these approaches are legitimate, of course, and what matters is that each is alert to the challenges posed by the others. So it's with considerable caution, but also some enthusiasm, that I have argued for a children's rights framework in the digital age because it offers a global framework, a strategic vision, and ethical inspiration for public empowerment online and offline, including for children. For researchers, the challenge is to square the universal framing of children's rights, important because it offers an integrating and widely ratified vision of what should be done with a thoroughly contextualised grasp of what children need, what harms them and how they can best express their agency. For policymakers and practitioners, this diversity of contexts complicates their efforts but shouldn't impede what I see as their dual tasks – not to focus as an exceptional and effortful project on children's rights in the digital age, but rather to find ways to embed the digital as taken for granted in the policies and practices of the organisations concerned with children's well-being. And conversely, to embed the importance of children's rights into the policies and practices of organisations concerned with the digital for the pathways to children's rights are being reconfigured by the digital age, as perhaps are those rights themselves. 
And now we're talking about many children everywhere, and for them, it's all to play for. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sonia. Wonderful timing as well. And now our first uh, respondent, John Carr. I hope you all remember that I am a stand-in, a last-minute stand-in. So this is a a largely extempore speech, which you will have noticed me writing while I was sitting at the table. And you will also know, because I'm famous for my good manners and sense of decorum, that had I been aware that I was going to be uh, tasked with this uh, duty, I would at least have worn a tuxedo or a white tie and tail. I most certainly wouldn't have worn my second-best pair of jeans. to honour my great friend uh, and colleague, uh, Sonia Sonia Livingston. Now, there there are at least two people in the room who will remember this first story that I'm going to tell you about research and evidence and children and the internet, and that's Tink Palmer and Annie Mullins, um, because I'm very old, as you can see, and uh, I've been involved in this space as long as those two have, So we remember uh, 1997, early 1998, a man called Patrick Green was convicted of what we now call grooming. The offence didn't exist um, then. In fact, it was partly because of him and what he did that the offence was created in the Sexual Offences Act 2003. He, a young man of 32, lived in Aylesbury, he met a 14-year-old girl um, in an MSN chat room, um, persuaded her to come to his flat, uh, where he raped her on three uh, separate occasions. And um, I was working then, as I am now, with children's organisations, and we thought we could see uh, an important new uh, a manifestation of an important new type of problem of which this was the first known example. And we got absolute wall-to-wall coverage in the media because it was the first reported case of a child having been raped following an encounter with an adult um, where the internet was the key uh, vehicle for facilitating that initial meeting. There was no space or place for us, the children's organisations, the children's lobby, to meet with and talk to the internet industry. Uh, and by the way, the internet industry in, that, in those days consisted entirely of ISPs. This was before Facebook existed and so on. Microsoft had obviously developed MSN Chat because this is where Patrick Green had met the young girl. Uh, but there was no space or place for us to meet. So the Department of Trade and Industries Internet Crime Forum undertook to facilitate a meeting between us and the representatives of the British Uh, internet industry, all from the ISPs, where we said, this case is worrying. This is a a harbinger, potentially, of more harm being done to children on the internet, and we need to get onto it straight away. They, I mean, I'm an an advocate, I'm a campaigner, that's my job, Uh, but I was astonished by what I then heard them say. They said, where is your evidence that this is anything that we really need to worry about. Isn't this just an unfortunate one-off case? Uh, It's the first one, as far as we can see, as far as we know right now, it's the only one. So we don't see the need to do anything. And I thought, well, 
you can't really argue it with it at one level. I mean, it was the first case. It was the only one that we knew about. I was simply saying, or we were simply saying, that we can foresee that if this has happened to one child, it can happen to many more, and that's why we need to respond. But the industry said, show us your evidence. There was no means of gathering evidence in those days. It, this, this incident was one of the things, by the way, which led in 2001 to the creation of what we now call UKIS. It was then called the Home Secretary's Task Force. It's now called UKIS. Sonia is indeed a member of it. And not long after uh, it was formed in 2001, the civil servants let a contract to some academics, I'm not going to name them, and it'll be obvious why when I tell you the rest of the story. Uh, they let a, a contract to some academics at a, a university quite a long way from London, in the north, uh, to look into children's use of chat rooms and so on. Eighteen months went by, and nobody had seen any outcome of this contract that had been let by some... Uh, civil servants in, in the Home Office. I finally was shown a couple of pages and they said, John, have a read of this and you will see why we must never ever allow this document to be published. It's completely unreadable, it's completely unusable. Why? Because there were the academics that they'd let this contract to then didn't know the subject, didn't know the, the field at all and they I mean, the civil servants were probably at fault for giving it to him in the first place, but we didn't have Sonia Livingston then. That was the, I concluded later on, looking back, that the problem was Sonia didn't exist, at least not in my world. In fact, we met for the first, in my world, um, we met around about that time, in around about 2004, when Sonia came onto the board of the Internet Watch Foundation, and things began to improve dramatically from, from our perspective, because... Uh, there was at last somebody who was taking an interest in and had the intellectual wherewithal and bandwidth to get to grips with the importance of research and evidence, but also knowing the limitations of, uh, uh, of, of empiricism. I mean, knowing what the truth is, by the way, doesn't always convince capitalist enterprises to do the right thing. It was a harsh reality that I discovered, uh, but it's nonetheless, you have to take them at their word and uh, you have to at least go through... Uh, the, the, the information gathering processes to, to face them on the ground which they, they want to take at least initially and you can tell I'm extemporising can't you, right as, the, as time went on and I'm, you're going to wave at me in three or four in, minutes left okay. as, as time went on the internet obviously expanded greatly from simply uh, the simple chat rooms that MSN and others provided the internet industry is now a much much more complicated uh, thing than it was in those early days but thanks to Sonia's scholarship and the, the, the global leadership that she's provided we always know where to go for intellectual rigour and methodological soundness because that, those are two qualities that Sonia embodies. By the way I am a, an alumnus of the LSE and I'm John Carr LLB, that means I was a lawyer many many years ago we may not agree in, in the end about the use of the word rights uh, in the context of uh, these discussions, because rights to me mean something which can be legally enforced. Uh, you know, rights traditionally are counterpoised against the notion of privilege. It's something that you can claim and get a court, court to enforce. Uh, but nevertheless, the fact that Sonia is taking an interest in this growing and this new but growing area of uh, research and interest, I think is great news for children around the world, because if she can repeat in this space what she has done in the other, children around the world will have a great deal to be thankful for.
Thank you very much, John. And our second respondent is uh, Professor Robin Mansell of the Media and Communications Department here at LSC. Um, good evening, everyone. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sonia. And um, thank you for asking me to make some comments. Um, I wondered about it. I don't study children, so you need to bear that in mind as I make my comments. Um, what I'd like to do is pick up on the theme of translating research. Why is it that these taken for granted, the ideas and the research that has been done over many years now, really doesn't become taken for granted in the halls of justice, in the corridors of power, and sometimes on the ground by practitioners. So I want to comment both on what Sonia has said and on her um, 2013 UNICEF report with this global agenda for children's (coughs) rights. What I'd like to do is to emphasize the role of research evidence in promoting respect for human rights in the context of knowledge societies or the digital age. I want to comment especially on the ongoing struggle to communicate a rights-based message effectively to policymakers and practitioners. This is particularly difficult, partly because of, of the tendency for digital technology interventions to emphasize technology first, something that Sonia mentioned, and to work from the top down. That is, to look for impacts, but to simply miss along the way, examining whether ICT interventions are actually failing to respect the rights of citizens, or children in this instance. To illustrate this, I want to take two quick examples from recently completed PhD theses, which I had the pleasure to examine. The first one is a study by Melanie Siltz from Dublin City University. She studied the way digital technologies are being promoted and used in education in Afghanistan, specifically laptops for children. She found all kinds of barriers to children's and teachers' participation in the the adoption of these laptops. Barriers may not surprise you. They were top-down government policies, lack of skills of teachers, (coughs) lack of time, lack of electricity, absence of digitized content that was contextualized, and I could go on. Melanie's point was that despite strong criticisms from local actors on the ground of a top-down approach, attempts by funders, and in this case it was a mix of international agencies and private sector partners, to do needs assessment before, during, and after the project, the top-down approach remained entrenched. During her last visit to the schools, the computers were not in use, they were broken, and many promises had not been met. The second study is a study by Florencia Engel, which was done at Karlstad University in Sweden. She examined the use of a mix of old and newer media, in this case web <laughs> in this case webcams, television and the internet, in a Dutch and UK government funded attempt to reconnect people, including young adults, following the wars in the Balkans. Despite efforts to improve lives by making and distributing videos to help people communicate across geographical space and through fractured extended families, she found unethical practices and intentional and unintentional infringements of people's rights. For example, people participating in the making of these videos 
were never allowed to view them before they went live in public. Despite the filmmakers' promises and the funders' promises, the participants could withdraw if they chose. Internet support tools were promised but never provided. Based on her empirical study, Florencia concluded that we need to see all forms of mediated communication using combinations of older and new media as being associated with multivalent outcomes, that is, outcomes that are sometimes positive and simultaneously negative. I guess this is the paradox that, in a way, Sonia was referring to. Florencia argued that researchers need to be aware of the conditions that often lead to a neglect for human rights and to injustice. In line with Sonia's emphasis on the importance of skills and literacies, this research emphasized that the greatest challenge, perhaps, is to strengthen the capabilities of all those who become involved in ICT or media interventions. This is essential if the goal of enhancing the lives of citizens, including children, is to be met in ways that minimize threats and maximize the benefits. Combining insights from these studies with some of my own work, albeit, again, not in the case of children, the chart I'm about to show you, if I can manage... Just the forward, the, the left, the right. Oh, you did good. There we are. Good. Thank you. Um, I'm combining the work of these two uh, PhD <coughs> candidates with my own work. Um, this chart is to help to explain why there is a persistent problem in the field of what is often called ICTs for development in practice. The chart shows that digital technology and media interventions can emphasize top-down or bottom-up participatory participatory practices, the vertical line. They can emphasize technology or content effects and impacts or stress contextual, local, or situated conditions, the horizontal line. Reviews of studies of digital technology and services projects shows that, um, first of all, there is a lot of research that sees ICTs as affecting or impacting on people in a way that seems to be expected to automatically lead to transformative positive social change. The problem is that the search for effects and impacts generally ends up providing insight into audiences or users that are treated homogeneously. The context of their lives is actually lost. Other research treats digital technologies or ICTs as neutral tools. Without an awareness of politics, the technologies, again, are assigned to lead, are assumed to lead to transformative positive social change. Too often, research and evaluations of ICTs for development are conducted, conducted at a distance. By that I mean, for instance, by people in national capitals who don't actually put their feet on the ground in local places, don't feel and don't see the problems. And some research seems to imagine a citizen whose rights are pre-given so that their rights do not have to be struggled for in practice. Where ICT users, or I put it in parentheses, beneficiaries, are treated as relatively homogeneous, as in these research traditions, lessons from research are often transferred without care and attention to the power relations that condition the everyday lives of people and the actual harms and benefits associated with the internet or access to mobile phones, for example. It is much more challenging 
and more resource intensive to treat citizens or children as engaged participants in the whole of the process of managing digital technology interventions, regardless of whether this involves older media or new internet services and platforms like Facebook. There are many strands in the participatory communication research tradition, but it is only really when the diversity of contexts and peoples is recognized that there is a chance of tackling troubled communication relationships that are mediated by ICTs or the internet. Relationships experienced in families, in social movements, or in other communities. The vast majority of ICT development projects, even when they aim to empower people, unfortunately can be shown to overemphasize the top-down approaches, short-run impact assessments, and idealized visions of the benefits of technology. Plans are all too often developed in ways that are not sufficiently informed by local conditions and are guided by unwarranted beliefs in the empowering potential of digital services and content. This is simply not consistent with respecting the rights of citizens and children, and Sonia's presentation has made this very clear. Until we as researchers and indeed practitioners and policymakers start working from the bottom left-hand side of a quadrant of this chart, emphasizing rights, ethical practice, and therefore engaged participation by citizens and children, there is little chance of challenging the unequal power relations that shape ICT interventions and their outcomes. Research and advocacy are needed that privilege bottom-up approaches that are sensitive to these local contexts. Implementing ICT projects that involve the internet or other digital technologies is likely to have a much better chance of enabling people in positive ways if we understand that the capabilities for achieving those outcomes are not equally distributed. Capabilities are, not, are needed not only by citizens for using digital technologies, including the internet, but I would suggest also for all those who finance, design, implement, and evaluate the projects and intervention strategies. The capabilities in question um, are related to how rights can be respected in practice. Internet-mediated communication, as Florencia found in her research, is always multivalent, it is not uniformly positive, and it is not always transformative in the ways that we would hope to the benefit of children. In a report uh, with Gaetan Tremblay, a French-Canadian scholar that I did for UNESCO in the same year, as Sonia and Monica Bulger's UNICEF report, we emphasized this, and I quote, investment in hardware and software cannot serve as a proxy for the abilities of people to make sense of their information and communication environment. Yet as I have suggested, too many ICT interventions are top-down and technology-centric. They treat access to the internet or mobile technologies and the rights associated with them as a proxy or a stand-in for the missing investment in capabilities that would underpin empowering social, economic, or political change involving digital communication. Sonia emphasizes the need for baseline evidence on experiences of using ICTs and that this requires holistic and longitudinal approaches. Holistic approaches, which would encompass the participatory approaches, I would argue, um, have a greater chance of acknowledging the voices of people and the, their participation as citizens, citizens who have rights. These need to be taken up by the political classes and by practitioners who are responsible for designing and implementing digital technology interventions. As researchers, 
I think we have an obligation to demonstrate why research approaches that look for the impacts in the way I was suggesting on undifferentiated users that treat technology as, neut- as a neutral tool or that imagine decontextualized users and yield results that are unhelpful in making sense of digitally mediated experiences of citizens and children. I conclude that Sonia's advocacy of attention to the rights of the, of the child is an essential part of any strategy for achieving benefits in the digital age while minimizing risks and maximizing benefits, and that it needs to be coupled with a learning process on the part of all of the stakeholders who are involved in the process. Thank you. Thank you very much, Robin and John, for those rich uh, responses. Uh, We now have just over 20 minutes for, for questions. Um, so over to you. There are obviously roving mics. Uh, can I maybe throw out one? Ah, just there's a lady there. Thank you. Interesting point. Uh, Sonia? Do I have to press this? Um, no. I think okay, sorry. Um, yes, I'm uh, more interested in children's rights than in the rights of the UN. Um, and um, I, Robin, uh, my colleagues are going to say more on that. But I think, um, to my mind, the key point is uh, that the um, this is a... What I see the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child is doing is setting out a framework that is um, an ambitious vision for children everywhere, which it is then up to each state to ratify or not. And most have ratified, um, a couple have not, which is something we could talk about. I also, can I just. 18. 18. Uh, we'll come back. 18. To that. 18. 18. Yes. I think the other point that I might want to make is um, absolutely bad stuff happens to all kinds of people and their rights are abused um, internationally in all kinds of ways, um, including online. So I'm really trying to restrict my remarks to where it is there might be a particular case that one would want to make for 
um, advocating for or researching for the rights for children online over and above the other rights which are, of course, specified in many um, okay. declarations. Thank you. You made your point. Okay. Uh, John, do you want to go yeah. back? Uh, I just want to make a, a kind of point of information, I guess. The United Nations doesn't dictate anything to no. anybody, about, particularly in relation to the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. United, the convention was a, adopted uh, 25 years ago by a unanimous vote of the General Assembly, in which was represented the, the 119 governments, 198 governments of the world. And since the General Assembly adopted that document unanimously, so the American government, you know, the British government, the French government, the Iraqi government, every government voted for that Declaration of Rights in the same way that they did the Declaration of Human Rights and all of that kind of thing. And subsequently, they've all ratified it with the exception of Somalia, South Sudan, and inexplicably, well, actually not inexplicably, the United States of America. Um, so every country, not only did they vote for it, and it, so there's no question of the UN bossing anybody around, uh, they subsequently ratified it. Now you're raising a different point, which we could also debate. But it's, to answer your point, nobody's bossing anybody around. Okay, <laughs> thank you very much. You've made your point. I want to bring in some more questions. Thank you very much. The gentleman right at the back in the green shirt was next, and then the gentleman in the pull uh, Thank you. Um, my name is John Brown from the NSPCC. Thanks, Sonia, for a really excellent lecture and also for the uh, responses as well. This is one of these pesky crystal ball questions, but I um, can't think of anyone or people better to, to have a go at answering it. So 20 years ago, very few people, as you were saying, Tony, would have uh, predicted the trajectory of the growth of the internet and the extent of its influence. Looking ahead over the next couple of decades and knowing now how the internet has developed so far, how do you think life online and children's rights online will develop? <laughs> Thank you, John. <laughs> um, I think, we, I, I think perhaps we, if we listen to the debates that are contentious now, um, I think some points that are currently contentious, might, um, we might have learned to live with them. We might have learned, and I don't say this is a good thing, to have learned to live with a level of tracking and surveillance and visibility in our lives that um, we may not uh, want or approve of, but I think it will become routine. I suspect that um, the world of anonymity is going to go and we will know who is a child, but then we'll know a good deal too much else and maybe what we know will be flawed or misused. Um, so I think a lot of the kind of early struggles which have been about anonymity, I think freedom of expression might be a lot less online than um, it currently is. I don't say that's good either. Um, so these are really kind of quite contradictory pressures and the kind of clash between rights to protection, rights to participation, um, and the kind of increased entrenchment and embedding of online uh, technologies in absolutely every aspect of our lives now. Um, yeah, it will continue. And um, it was, was it John Carr who gave me the circle to read? I think ah, it was. Yes. Yeah. What made the biggest the impression to me about reading Dave Egger's novel is that we voluntarily embrace that world. Right, thank you. He's not being plugged here anymore, Dave Eggers, but it's, uh, it is an important book. Now, the gentleman in the red pillar was the next.
Thanks very much. Um, I'm a filmmaker who 20 years or so ago was uh, part of the BBC's developments in interactive media and online media. And I, at that time, uh, would think that, that the group of us that did that had a rather naive idea about the benefits. In the way that um, uh, you were speaking in your presentation, Sonia, the benefits were on the one hand, the harms were on the other, and both needed research. And indeed, both, they, both do. I did some research in using uh, interactive media for learning myself. But I now feel that we've reached a really desperate crisis situation on the harms. It seems to me rather than talking about what more research is needed, we could let the benefits take care of themselves. And I'd like to hear more definite, practical suggestions as to what legislation is needed, what international agreements are needed, what kinds of technology we can introduce to protect people's identity and to protect their age group, as it were, what practically we can do in the way of old-fashioned censorship, because some of the harms in relation to pornography and terrorism and so on is now so obvious, they don't require, in my view, more research, they require action. Okay. I'm Sorry. sure my colleagues are going to want to come in on this, and I should have let them come in on the, the, the 20 years in the future as well. Um, just a couple of comments. I think um, policy, in a way, is still um, where John's story was. I think it still will not act unless there is the evidence. But I wouldn't say wait 18 months or indeed 10 years so that we can track um, change. Um, I also think it's not my place to say these are the laws that are required. Thank goodness I see some lawyers in the room and they'll be better placed to say that. Um, what I hope to do is be the, play the part of the picture that says here is where the problem is. But to come back to your, your kind of core point, um, no, I will not give up on the benefits to prioritise the harms for two reasons. Firstly, because when I came into this field, these were two conversations happening in separate places. There were people over there led by Department of Education or whoever who were talking about benefits and they just forgot. It didn't I remember vividly Tony Blair saying let's give every kid an email address and put it up on the school website because that was in the positive space and he didn't think how this might be abused. And similarly, over in the harm camp, there were a lot of people worrying very reasonably and very fairly about harm, but they didn't see how they were restricting children's opportunities. So it's only if we talk about them, that's why I keep trying to be even-handed. And as I hinted in my talk, though um, I perhaps could have brought it out more, I don't think the benefits will take care of themselves. I think unless we try imaginatively and thoughtfully and creatively to envision what we really want for children, actually they will spend a lot of time, dare I say, wasting their time or repeating certain activities or engaged in some, but just not knowing what the other possibilities are. Okay, thank you. Do you, uh, do you want to comment on that? Okay. Um, just briefly, I think I can't possibly predict the next 20 years, but I think I would um, ask the question and frame it by asking what kind of world do we want to live in? And then I would further say who is we? Because in much of this discussion about how and whether we alter the future course of the way the Internet is developing, um, we tend to presume that we have the institutions to do it if only we could agree. And I think that in so much of the world, um, the institutions sim simply aren't there. They're not there in this area, and they're not net there in other areas either. And so I think that there's a, a really complex problem about how do, we, how do we actually move forward. And there I would point to governance arrangements and whether or not we can actually make 
democratic dialogue in this field work in a multi-stakeholder environment. And I'm both optimistic and pessimistic about that. Thank you. Gentleman in the blue shirt has a question. Thank you. Uh, I'm John Galloway. I'm an advisory teacher for ICT, SEN and Inclusion. So I work in education and I look for ways of making uh, the curriculum accessible through technology. Uh, and one of my concerns is, uh, I, I also work in e-safety, but one of my concerns is that we, we can talk about keeping children safe, but we don't often talk about actually getting kids into the, the social networking space in the first place. There are some who are excluded due to uh, special needs and disabilities. So uh, my concern is how do we uh, make sure that any rights children have for internet use are actually inclusive in the sense that they are for all children? And they make, make sure, I appreciate that you know, that's a, probably an impossibility, but that we make sure that the margins of those who are not included are as slim as possible. And who is it that we're going to have to approach, you know, providers, governments and so on, in order to ensure that when we say these are the rights of all children, that we make that as much of a reality as we possibly can? Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the key statements in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child is that the rights should apply without discrimination, and um, further, that they should apply in the best interest of the child. So I think thinking what is in the best interest for all children and how to make those um, opportunities to participate with um, certain safety parameters available to all is a priority. But as I said, that, you know, the convention, John has already said, is not terribly effective and it applies to states. And we're talking about, um, as Robin said, a very kind of multi-stakeholder domain. So in the first instance, I might say in this country, the Department of Education should be playing a role. Um, one might look at the providers of the social networking services, which also should not provide discriminatory um, resources, especially when they are taken up by a public, when they begin to claim that kind of um, public uh, significance beyond that of a kind of private sector offering. Uh, but but, but that's, you know, that is the importance of the space that John was describing. It has got to be some kind of place where people come together and say, how do we take into account this particular group, the needs of this other group, and as some of us here in this room have um, examined, not all vulnerable children are vulnerable in the same way. They are vulnerable in very many different kinds of ways. And it's difficult, it's expensive. So what does it need? It needs advocates like you who say, don't forget these kids. Thank you. Gentleman in the glasses over there. Hey, it's on you, Simon Milne from Facebook. Uh, great lecture. It's nice to be back at the ICM. I'm also an alumnus, John. Um, rather than look forward, I want you to look back and think, if we were applying this framework of rights, would we think that the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act was a good thing or a bad thing? Well, the, children, the Children's Online Protection, Privacy Protection Act was, um, so it's passed in the United States, it's passed um, to ensure that children under the age of 13 didn't get specifically marketed at without their parents understood. It has become a kind of global standard for um, uh, protecting or perhaps preventing children all around the world um, from accessing anything that uh, involves their private data or their private communications. 
Would we say it was a good thing? But I think we might, um, if we'd been had the crystal ball and anticipated uh, how American laws were going to be applied more widely, how laws about advertising were going to be understood more widely, we might have been able to think in a more nuanced way about <coughs> different kinds of laws that were required. Um, copper cannot bear the whole weight that it's now being required to bear. Uh, as we know, there are all kinds of problems with parents verifying and, and so on. Um, so back to the convention, which I'm taking as my guide for the evening. It says we should treat children um, and their rights according to their evolving capacities. And nothing magical happens at 13, just like nothing magical happens at 18. But children have different needs at different ages. How can the Internet deal with that? Um, it's going to cost money, isn't it? <laughs> because it means, tailor, it means more niche markets, more tailoring to particular needs, um, perhaps that is where we'll go because the problems of kind of treating everyone en masse I think are just, you know, the system is creaking uh, under its own weight. John, do you want to come back? I do. Um, <clears throat> in the UK and most of Europe we've bought into this idea of self-regulation and if, but if actually if you look at the United States, the home of the internet they don't go for that at all. The Federal Trade Commission, which is the body which has a regulatory responsibility for the copper, the, 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 the privacy legislation Simon referred to, it intervenes and jumps all over internet companies constantly. Where, where I don't know why, how we ever got suckered into the idea that, we, that self-regulation was the only way, when in the United Politics, States it's anything yeah. but self-regulatory. So the Federal Trade Commission, when they in, initiated a consultation on the efficacy of copper about two years ago, pretty much they said, we know this is a crap piece of law that isn't really helping protect children at all, but we can't find anything better. So, it's, so we'll just leave it as it is. Now, to any sane person, that would have been a fairly damning conclusion. What has the European Commission done, however? The European Commission has decided in the draft privacy directive, which presumably at one point will be adopted, it has said, well, the Americans have got this copper legislation, so we're going to copy it. And, and, I mean, honestly, you think I'm joking? That is pretty much exactly what they said. They did not bring forward any evidence or any research to indicate how establishing uh, 13 as the age uh, for access to uh, online services without parental consent, they didn't produce any evidence at all as to how it might work better or different in Europe. They simply said the Americans have been doing it for quite a long time now, so it's been accepted but, they, but the Americans acknowledge it doesn't work to protect children. So I think it was a creature of its time. By the way, it was passed in 1998 in the 20th century. As lots of you will remember the 20th century. <laughs> um, uh, it only became operative in the 21st century, about 18, in the year 2000. It was out of date the moment the ink was dry, and yet we are going to copy it here in Europe. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, question right in the middle. Thank you. Hello. Um, my name's Holly Powell-Jones. I teach media, law and ethics in secondary schools and I'm researching teenagers' understandings and perceptions of cyber criminality. Um, the thing I wanted to ask uh, the panel about is, you may have seen in the news to coincide with Safer Internet Day, there's a launching of new apps that basically allow parents to 24-7 track and monitor all of their children's uh, communications on their mobiles. Um, I increasingly talk to parents who um, are very worried about their children 
at risk of harm online and think that this is a fantastic idea and want to go and download it. I want to know what you might say to some of those parents, um, particularly in consideration of perhaps children's rights being weighed up with risks. Okay, thank you very much. Um, I have been intrigued by the question of what children's rights to privacy against their parents are and um, I've been asking every lawyer I meet in the last year um, and it's astonishingly difficult to know but children are very clear that they have rights of privacy um, from their parents and then that is a really important part of growing up and indeed parents when they are um, calm and not panicked by the Daily Mail and able to kind of think clearly I think also understand that their children need that privacy and yet as I um, said to John Brown earlier I um, think parents will get these apps and then they will negotiate maybe not using them to their full extent and anyway they're going to be too busy to watch the mobile of where their child is going every minute of the day Um, yeah I've been talking to parents too and I am astonished that anyone over a certain age is horrified by these ways of tracking children and Parents of young children just say, thank goodness it's going to take a weight off my mind. Um, So what can we say? We say what we keep saying to parents. Find a way to keep a channel of trust between you and your child and don't monitor them uh, through technology substituting for social relationships. We kind of know that and we keep saying it, and yet there's something very enticing about the app that will replace parenting. It's quite scary. (laughs) Yeah, I think there are potentially conflicts here, uh, even, even possibly even legal conflicts between you know, the child's right to privacy, the child's right to free expression, uh, the child's right to access information, and the parent's evident desire to <laughs> make it different from that, uh, and therefore, thereby denying the child those legal rights or those things that they ought to have as legal rights. So I definitely think you've, you've hit on something very important, and I think it is fundamentally a, a conversation about parenting rather than, <laughs> rather than about apps. Just going back to very, very briefly, there are one of the reasons the United States of America has never ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child is because, and I've written a blog about this, by the way, so if any of you want to, uh, uh, to this point to be further il- illuminated for you, I-, I can give you my blog afterwards. Uh, but uh, The the United States Supreme Court has made it clear time and time again that parents do have a superior set of rights as against their children. There have been some astonishing decisions. That's one of the reasons the the, the US cannot uh, ratify the convention because in the convention the rights of the child and the best interests of the child are given primacy. But in a range of decisions in the US Supreme Court the parents' rights over their child have been given primacy, and, and I think that in part reflects on some of the attitudes of American companies towards how we in Europe discuss these questions. Robin, thank you. Um, I just wanted to add to that, to complicate things even further in the rights discourse. <clears throat> Excuse me. Companies, coming back to Simon's point, also have rights. They have the right to be able to do business, conduct their business in Europe and around the world, and their rights to be able to engage in uh, creating apps and services of various kinds also need to be taken into the um, discussion because it's not just about the rights of us as individuals or children, it's also about the corporate rights. 
So we've reached a point where we've decided technology can't replace parenting, although some want it to. We have conflicts between different types of rights. In other words, we've nicely com complicated the issue, which is an appropriate time, I think, for us to have a drink and continue the debate. Let's thank our two respondents. And Lisa Bubble, thanks, Sonia, for a great day.